Food and family is an almost universal trope. And not only the food, but the objects that prepare and serve the food preserve memory too. We talk about the collective memory of food. It's on tip of the tongue. Tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. We're here today with Abby Rode Pausina. She's curator and researcher of an upcoming exhibit called the Syrian Lebanese American Kitchen that is soon to open at SOFAB. Very, very soon. So welcome, Abby. Hi, Liz. Thank you so much for having me. So I'm really anxious to figure out how you decided to do this exhibit. Yeah, well, I am a fourth generation Syrian American. My my great great grandparents came over from what was then Ottoman Syria in 1897. They were a part of that big first wave of Syrian Lebanese immigrants that came to the United States around the turn of the century. And I grew up always feeling very connected to my Syrian American heritage through my grandmother, keeping it quite alive. She was my city, who she recently passed away. And city, by the way, means grandmother in Arabic. Yes. So was she born in the United States? She was, yes. So it was her grandparents who came over. Her mother was a first-generation immigrant, um, Edwige. And then they named her Shirley after Shirley Temple because they really (laughs) emphasized and wanted to make sure that she was being totally American. That was a big priority for them. American, thoroughly American. Yep. That's like my grandfather who was Francesco. He was born Francesco, but he changed his name legally to Frank. Mm, yeah you called him Francesco he was not happy (laughs) that's so interesting and it also happened sort of on a wider scale when families were coming in through Ellis Island as well like immigration officials would purposefully Americanize their names and I I found that in my research that that happened with a number of families that I interviewed so did your great great grandparents come directly to New Orleans or did they take some sort of route through the US to get here? So as far as we know, they made it down to the south and ended up in New Iberia. And then from New Iberia, they moved to New Orleans in the late 1800s and established themselves in the French Quarter and had a dry goods store there where they ended up being quite economically successful. But many Syrian and Lebanese immigrants would have just dispersed throughout the entire United States from Ellis Island because they were mostly peddlers. And so they would follow the train tracks or the river communities and end up wherever they ended up. And that's why we have Syrian Lebanese people all over the U.S., So if they were living in the French Quarter, this was at the same time that the French Quarter was Little Palermo. And so they were living right in the big Sicilian community that was there. Absolutely, yeah. Did they have close ties to the Sicilians? I mean, historically in New Orleans, did the Syrian Lebanese community have close ties to the Sicilians? 
So as far as economically, I'm not quite sure, but I, I do know that for just from hearing stories about my great grandmother at Liege growing up in the French border, she would shop at Central Grocery and, and go to all of the Italian or Sicilian stores and whatnot, but they were very close knit in their own community. Um, as far as I've discovered in my research, the Syrian Lebanese people either, you know, came over together or helped each other settle, found each other very quickly and, and created a very large community of support. So what drove the people here in the beginning? So at the time, it was towards the end, the decline, you could say, of the Ottoman Empire. It was facing a lot of economic turmoil because it had gotten very big. There was also some religious infighting and fighting, especially in the areas of Mount Lebanon and Syria. And so a lot of the Syrian and Lebanese immigrants that came to the U.S. at that time were Christians who were fleeing sort of a Muslim majority that was making its way into their neighborhoods and into their towns. And so we see that as well, that when they come here, maybe they were Marianite Christians or Orthodox Christians, but when they come to New Orleans, they switch over to Roman Catholicism and find that to be quite an easy transition, partly because there weren't Marianite or Greek Orthodox churches at the time, mm -hmm. um, and other part probably just because it was what was convenient, and New Orleans is always has been such a Catholic town. Yes, and New Orleans is kind of loose in some of its ways, too, so they probably could find a way to keep some of their cultural practices without feeling that that wasn't acceptable. So that was probably true, too. Definitely. So what is the state of the connection today among people of Syrian Lebanese heritage in New Orleans? So as far as my research, which I interviewed about 15 different participants from various Syrian and Lebanese families that came all around the, around the same time, the turn of the 20th century. So now we're four or five generations down. Everybody still knows everybody. Everybody still knows everybody's business and <laughs> hangs out and communicates. And um, it, it, some participants shared that it is a little less connected than it was maybe when they were growing up in the 60s and 70s. But there's still an active Syrian Lebanese club in New Orleans and then also a, a Lebanese American club as well. So people do remain, I feel like they remain quite tied to their heritage, but mostly through the food and through cooking and through hanging out with each other. Of course, that's why this exhibit is going to be at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum. Yes, absolutely. Such a rich tie in the food. So tell, tell us a little bit about the food. Absolutely. Yeah. So that was what really sort of piqued my interest in the beginning about the nature of this project at all, because that's how I feel most connected to my Syrian American heritage being four or five generations down. I don't, you know, I, I wasn't taught to speak Arabic when I was younger. I did learn it later on in my schooling. Um, I don't practice the same religion as my great grandparents. I don't dress the same, but I know how to make kibbe because my grandmother, my city taught me, you know, I know how to roll grape leaf meshi and make tabouli. And that is what really came across as the through line through all of my interviews that maybe people don't feel connected in other ways, but they definitely still feel connected through the recipes, through the cooking techniques, and they're still passing those down to their children. So explain a little bit about the Syrian Lebanese connection. 
because today, of course, we think of these as two different places and uh, with different cultures. And um, so why are they together? Yeah, so historically, it's a bit tricky because before World War One, it was all mixed up in the Ottoman Empire. They had different governance, they would call them, that were controlled by different Ottoman, you know, governors. But there wasn't ever really like defined national borders that were called Syria or Lebanon at the time. So then World War One happens, the fall of the Ottoman Empire, and the Middle East gets cut up and divvied up between the European powers. Some countries, you know, they're literally drawing lines on a map in a room in London, sort of not really caring about cutting through different ethnic communities and different geographic boundaries. It's it's what's convenient for the British and for the French at that time. Plus, they and, probably didn't even know enough about geography and who was there to know that they were doing that. Exactly. Or to even care to know. <laughs> and. <laughs> So yeah, that's where we get those borders that we have today that are called Syria and Lebanon. But before that, for the thousands of years that humans lived in that land, there were there weren't those national ties. There would have been much stronger ties to sects or to tribes or to families. And so today we have our borders of Syria and Lebanon, but it really doesn't mean much in historical terms. Yes. Unfortunately, when we're when we're thinking about it, we our first thought is, what is it today? And mm-hmm. then you have to kind of think back. And then you don't necessarily know how far back to go when you're trying sure. to put it all together. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let's talk about the food. So how how has the food stayed the same? And how has the food changed in all of these generations? And knowing that it's been influenced by being here in New Orleans. Oh, that is an excellent question. So I'm sure that we're rolling grape leaf meshi, for instance, the same way that my great-grandmother did in her kitchen in the big house on Canal Street. We have very similar techniques about the care of picking certain cuts of meat and grinding it multiple times to make sure it's the most tender version possible. So there are definitely things that have absolutely been preserved. But as is typical with all things that are passed down through oral history, I'm sure there's been some nuance and some different flavors added through the different generations, because that is a big hallmark of the Syrian Lebanese community is we don't write recipes down. Mm -hmm. You learn to cook from your mother, from your grandmother by watching and being in the kitchen with them. Now, the Creole cuisine connection is really interesting just from my own personal family's perspective. My grandmother, my city, as I've said before, she was an amazing chef and she cooked amazing, authentic Syrian dishes. But we also would often eat these really delicious pot cooking meals that would be like stewed snap beans in tomato gravy with lamb or stewed okra in the tomato gravy with lamb or lima beans and chicken. And so those are definitely dishes that are inspired by Creole cooking techniques or French cooking techniques, building up from a pot, you know, down from the base to the bot to the top. But they have those Syrian flavors and those Syrian ingredients like the lamb and the spices and whatnot. So that's something I just noticed in my own family that is I can't really find those recipes in Syrian Lebanese cookbooks, but it's in my city's cookbook. So did she have a handwritten cookbook that she kept? So she would keep her recipes in a little like almost like Filofax note card box, but... 
thankfully about 10 years ago before she passed we sort of did a family project where we had her sit down and write down every recipe that she would always just be making by memory we were able to write note um and she was able to share stories and that was something that we just internally circulated amongst our family so that will be featured in the exhibit as well her cookbook did she also have certain dishes that she served things in that, you know, oh. she always served this in this green platter and she always served this in this bowl with the crack in it kind of thing. Definitely. Absolutely. We have, and we still use those pots and those serving pieces to this day. Just on the top of my head, I'm thinking of the big yellow pot that we would always cook the grape leaf mesh in. I'm thinking of the antique, you know, pans that we would cook the kibbe and the batlewa in and she had one like she had many serving pieces that were special to her either from her wedding or passed down from her grandparents and parents that we still use today in our holiday celebrations and stuff oh that's good i think it's so important not only to have the, the recipes of course which are primary but secondarily to just have that visual remembrance of this pot or this dish or this bowl or whatever I, I just think that that's so important. Oh, and absolutely. And I'm thinking how many like pieces of meshi have been cooked in that pot over the last hundred years, like countless, absolutely countless. You could fill a room probably with all the, the grape leaves that have been cooked in that pot. Yes. All right. So tell me a little bit about the spices and the seasonings that make it authentic to your family. Sure. So it's usually different mixes and blends. And this is very common in the Middle East and in the Arab world as well that are always used for certain types of cooking. So when we make our kibbe, which sometimes you'll hear pronounced kubbe, that's usually ground lamb or ground beef mixed with bulgur wheat, um, which we say budagal in Arabic. And it's mixed with a lot of spices. And so the spices we use for the kibbe are going to be slightly different than the spice mix that we use for the meshi filling, for instance. For the kibbe, we include cinnamon, allspice, cayenne pepper. Oh, I know I'm missing a couple. <laughs> Definitely some salt is thrown in there, but but they all have different purposes. For instance, cinnamon is is used as a natural preservative as well, because one way that you can serve and eat the kibbe, you can bake it in a pan with a filling that we call hashwi, which is so delicious. It's like pine nuts and onions and more ground beef, or you can serve the the mixture I just described raw. And so with the cinnamon in there, that acted as a natural preservative that I'm sure, you know, was used for countless years. So people could enjoy that, that delicacy raw. And in all of my interviews, that is the dish that people miss the most from their childhood that they probably don't make as often as their parents or their grandparents used to make was the raw kibbinei, we call that. And so if you had leftover raw kibbe, then would you cook it so that the next day you could eat, eat it again? Definitely. Yeah, you would make a bunch of it raw and enjoy that probably the day you made it and you eat it with a piece of fresh white onion or green onion drizzled with olive oil and some good Syrian pita bread or Lebanese bread, lavash, anything you have really flat bread. And then that was what they would do. They would put it in the pan with the filling that they would then make with the and it's 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 basically like a little sandwich. They do a layer of the bulgur wheat mix 
a layer of the hashwi and a layer of the bulgur wheat mix again, and you score it in the pan and you they come out in little diamond shapes. Mm-hmm. And we would also make a special version of kibbe that I think like we made in our family only for Mardi Gras, but you often see it in restaurants as how kibbe is served is when it's in the sort of football form. And that's where it's it's all the bulgur wheat outside and the hashwi filling in the middle and you deep fry it. And so that's just like kibbe on the go. It's easy to grab. We would bring it out to the parade route and stuff. I would wake up early on Mardi Gras morning with my city and start frying at like 4 a.m. So we would have fresh hot football kibbe <laughs> for the for the parades. So I was recently at a friend's house who is of Lebanese, Syrian, Syrian Lebanese uh, descent. Mm-hmm. And she had a layer of cream cheese in her skibby and admitted to everybody that this is totally non-traditional. However, in her family, they like it and that her children always ask for it with the cream cheese. So she decided that she would make that version of it for us for dinner that night. And of course, it was wonderful. It was so unexpected and so different because that creaminess is something that you just don't expect in kibbe. Um, yeah. But it was good. It was really good. That is fascinating. I would love to try that because there, there's even, there's a dish in um, traditional Syrian Lebanese cooking called kibbe levni, which is where you take the kibbe balls and you poach it in like that thick Arab yogurt, you know, like the leban, like the sour, almost Greek yogurt. And so I feel like that would be a very similar vibe, but she's just sort of expediting it by putting it in the middle. And just to ask, would she use sort of American cream cheese or was she using more of like the Leban sort of tart yogurty cheese? So it was, it was actual cream cheese, mm. like Philadelphia cream yeah. cheese. Mm-hmm. But I don't know whether she maybe whipped it in with some yogurt, you know, together to give it a little bit more of a bite than uh, cream cheese would have. Cause I wasn't there when she made it. Sure. And uh, also, I wasn't the only person at the table because I would have grilled her until she told me to shut up. <laughs> but uh, she, uh, she uh, you know, we had other people at the table, so I didn't feel that I could just keep asking her a million questions. Oh my gosh, that sounds so good, though. I'm obsessed with that, and I might have to try that next time we have some kibbe meat going in the house. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have invited her to the opening. Oh, great. So I will put you two together if she makes it. So yes, that would be awesome. That would be great. Okay. Mm -hmm. So so let's talk a little bit more about the exhibit. Yes. Um, I know that you've done a lot of oral histories. And so the oral histories are going to wind up on the Nitty Grits website so that uh, people can listen to them as a, as like a special interest podcast and people can listen to them whenever they want to. Uh, Oh, amazing. So you're still working on that, right? Or yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then how did all of those interviews inform the way you put together the exhibit? Yeah, so initially I was thinking that this was going to be an exhibit that focused more around the businesses of these early families that were living and working in the French Quarter. Um many of them had dry goods stores that m- ended up making them extremely economically successful at the time. They were importing, but they were also just a sort of hub for local products and local wares from the Bayou communities and also just in New Orleans. Um, And a lot of those connections had been made when they were peddlers before. So that was a way that they were able to, to keep those connections alive. But I found in my actual interviewing that 
everyone wanted just to talk more about the food. And that seemed to be the strongest link that still remained from people that are living today who are descendants of these early immigrants to their heritage and to their their ancestors. And so that is what just kept coming up over and over again is, is how strongly connected they felt with the food. And so instead, what I've decided to do is recreate a typical Syrian Lebanese American kitchen dating back to around the time of the turn of the century with um, authentic you know, furniture pieces and, and appliances from that time period. I have an antique stove, an antique icebox. Hopefully it should just feel like you're stepping back into time and you're joining what was always the busiest room in the house and definitely the hearth of the family and the home, which was the kitchen for these people, because that was what really brought everyone together. Syrian cooking and Lebanese cooking, it's not something you really want to do alone. It's very labor intensive. It's very fiddly. You have to individually roll every piece of meshi. You have to pound and season. It's a group effort with, with the kibbi and with the tabouli and everything. So it's something that the women especially would gather in the kitchen and spend all day doing and preparing for big, you know, dinners and Sunday feasts and stuff. It was such a labor of love. And so that is, that's what I learned from my city. And that's what I want to sort of share with anyone who comes and sees the exhibit. So about how many people did you wind up interviewing? So I interviewed around 15 and I still have people trying to, to reach out. So I hopefully will be able to just keep adding on to this project as it moves forward, even after the exhibit actually opens at the museum so that I can just keep building and adding to that collection of oral history that will be available um, online. I just think that it's such an important project because it is not a community that has a large, large voice in the everydayness of the city as important as it is and I think that when that happens when because it's not as big as say the Sicilian community or the African-American community and so I think sometimes when that happens people begin to intermarry and things get lost and we don't want that to happen without at the very least having documented it so I think what you're doing is really important so are you connected in any way to other communities around the state and the country? So I would really hope to, to be able to do that a bit more moving forward. I have mainly just been focusing on the New Orleans population and people who, you know, family connections through the interviews that I've been doing. I do know that there is a great national project that was done out of Washington. Um, and that is something that I'm going to follow up on and see if I can get hooked up with them. Once I have more information about that, I will definitely share um, but yeah, no, that it's very interesting that you touched on that because that's also what brought me towards this topic as well is that I was noticing the lack of information in the public record and in the archive about this immigrant community that I knew just from my own family history that we've been active in New Orleans since the late 1800s. And I think it's for the reasons you exactly just mentioned that not only were they a small group and so maybe just sort of passed over in the terms of study and research, but they also really, really prioritized assimilation and Americanization. And they held on to their 
elements of their cultural heritage that was most important to them, but usually just within the family and within the home. And everywhere else, they wanted to be American and they wanted to be white and they wanted to just absolutely meld into the fabric of Southern, you know, US society. And I think that that has translated and trickled down definitely through the generations, but the ties that are still there are very, very strong. And also they were able to sort of navigate the the South and the New Orleans economy because of their like legal definition as being white. I found in my research that when they were going through the naturalization courts to become American citizens in the early 1900s, many Syrian Lebanese families are hired lawyers to argue legally that they were um, white, quote unquote white, because of their maybe being descended from the Caucasians who would have invaded the Middle East during the Crusades. And many of them argued they could trace their lineage back through last names such as Germani, and maybe they had lighter skin and lighter eyes. So those were the sort of legal arguments that we see in the courts at that time. And, and that also was setting a, a huge legal precedent because there wasn't really a legal definition of whiteness before then. So it was the Syrian Lebanese peoples who came to New Orleans who, I have to think, were looking around Jim Crow era, the South, and they were seeing how minority communities were being treated, especially the Black community, and they didn't want to not be white. And that sort of legal definition of whiteness gave them huge access to economic opportunities that other minority ethnic communities or immigrant communities might not have had. It allowed them to own property in the French Quarter, for instance. It allowed them to go downtown whenever they liked. They could subvert the Black codes. They could subvert the voting disenfranchisement that was happening at that time for the Black community, especially. So yeah, it had a, a, a huge effect on their own economic success, but also how their descendants view themselves. Like every participant I spoke to, including my, my city before she passed, said that they self-identified as white when they are 100% at times, Middle Eastern, you know, mm -hmm. and that, that's also why to this day that there's not a Middle Eastern option on the census or on government documents, because they these people have always been legally white. And so I, that was also just something that came forward in my research that I found so interesting uh, to explore. That is very, very interesting. Well, it's just one more rabbit hole to go down. <laughs> Absolutely. And I had to really rein it in with this project. I had to remind myself to keep focused on the food and keep focused on <laughs> the cooking in the kitchen because everything else that was coming up, I could just write endless papers and articles and books about. Well, so one more question. This is not a food question, but I'll end on a food question. Sure. Um, you you talked about people mostly who came here were, were fleeing the area, not only because of the end of the Ottoman Empire and the war and whatever, but also because of some religious persecution or fear of, of religious persecution. So they came here, there wasn't a lot of Orthodox Christian opportunity, um, and so they kind of converted to Catholicism. So has that been the standard religion then from from generation to generation they they're not like going back to the greek orthodox church or something like that today or or, or are they I'm, I'm making an assumption 
Yeah, no, not as far as I've seen in my research. Those that did convert to Roman Catholicism, some families converted to the Episcopal Church or even the Methodist Church, but overwhelmingly they were becoming Roman Catholic. They are definitely, their descendants are still Roman Catholic to this day. I don't think a single person I interviewed went back to the Greek Orthodox Church, for instance, when it opened up, um, whenever that was, I think in the 50s or 60s. Um, but yeah, that, that's what I found in my research in any case. I'm not quite sure if that's true across the board. Right. So about how many people do you think actually came into New Orleans in the late 19th century that yeah, that's from this community? Yes, that, that is a figure that I've been trying to nail down because as we've mentioned, part of the reason I was doing this project was that there is just such a lack of information, um, even in government documents and censuses. And I think that's also could be due to what we what we spoke about earlier, that they didn't want to be identified as Syrian and Lebanese. So the counts are probably very skewed and not accurate. But as far as I could tell around the time, it was definitely in the thousands. Mm -hmm. um, I'm If I had to guess just New Orleans, maybe around one to two to three thousand. But there were many Syrian Lebanese people, like I mentioned, who settled in areas like New Iberia, Lafayette, northern Louisiana, huge amounts in the Gulf Coast, past Christian, you know, Mississippi, those kind of places. Um, and yeah, that's just to name the Gulf South. There's a very vibrant Syrian Lebanese community in Milwaukee, for instance, like random places that people <laughs> ended up and just sort of stuck together, either because they already knew people there. That was another thing I asked my participants, what they thought, why did their family specifically end up in New Orleans, as opposed to staying in New York or going to the Midwest or going to California? And everyone had different ideas, but the ones that came forward um, that seemed to be reiterated a few times was that the French connection might have been a huge thing because they were coming from French, you know, colonial right. Syria, Lebanon, that they had always had a historical connection with. So the language might have been accessible in that way. Maybe they knew a bit of French and they could they could communicate with the Creole French speakers here. It also is a very similar climate. Mm -hmm. And the port of New Orleans, I imagine, was very attractive for people seeking import, export, economic mm -hmm. opportunities. Just just the trade possibilities that, yes. that, that opened up. Yes. And the existent population probably as well, because there have been Syrian Lebanese people who have come to New Orleans even before that big first wave. Right, right. Of course. Mm -hmm. All right. So let's get back to food. Let's yes. end on that note. So we've talked about kibbe, we've talked about grape leaves. Mm -hmm. What else what else can we expect? Oh yes, so at the actual exhibit you'll be able to see certain cooking apparati apparatuses like the big meshy pot. I have an antique meat grinder that was literally my great grandparents meat grinder that they would use, an Arab coffee pot, coffee grinder, that kind of stuff. But just you know, just to describe a typical Sunday dinner, which was very, very important to the, the Syrian Lebanese community, everyone gathering for Sunday dinner, including friends and colleagues and, co you know, uh, non-Syrian Lebanese people as well. For instance, at the Canal Street house, which was my great grandparents' big house on Canal Street, the priests would always come over for Sunday dinner, you know. So it was really a gathering place to share their Syrian Lebanese heritage through food as well. So just to describe a little bit about what, what 
would have been on that table and it would have been absolutely heaving with dishes. You would have definitely a few different types of stuffed meshy, rolled grape leaves, rolled cabbage leaves, maybe stuffed squash and stuffed eggplants, which we call shekel meshy. And the stuffing in there is usually lamb and rice mixed with spices, similar spices to the kibbe spices. You'd also have two to three types of kibbe, the raw, as I mentioned, the baked sinii, as I mentioned, and also there's a, a amazing kibbe dish that's a favorite in my family called kibbe mishui, which is almost looks like a little hamburger patty, but it's hollow in the middle and it's filled with suet, lamb fats mm -hmm. from around the kidney, and you grill it on a hot flame. And so when you sort of bite into that meat, you know, patty pocket, it opens up and the lamb fat just dribbles out so warm and so fragrant and so delicious. So that there definitely would have been, that would have been a special occasion to have mechuis on the grill. Sure. Then of course you'd have to have a big tabbouleh salad, lots of herbs, bulgur wheat, tomato, onion, some dips, definitely hummus, baba ganoush, um, which they all called baba ganoush, which I think is interesting because back in the Levant in the Middle East, that is called mtubo in the Palestinian community and, and the Syrian Lebanese community. But maybe that was a part of the Americanization that they picked up from the Greek people or whatnot and just called it baba ganoush. Mm -hmm. um, definitely some sort of filler, as my city used to say, like just so people didn't, you know, could fill ups on some of that. And so everyone could have most of the good stuff. The filler would normally be rice dressing, which was a Syrian adaptation of dirty rice uh -huh. um, or mjedra, which is one of my favorite things to cook to this day. It's literally three ingredients lentil rice and onions you cook it all in one big pot and I, I'll eat it for a week it's it's most the most delicious and most budget efficient meal that like you could make I made it a lot when I was a student um, so yeah that's pretty much it and then definitely some bread and they would get the bread from you know local bakers but also from each other so mm -hmm. like for instance in my family we just knew that this aunt always made the bread and she would bring the bread or this other aunt would always make the sweets and she would make the batlewa and the cookies and everything so there was just like a big sharing of um elements of food that that everyone would just cook a lot and send stuff home and send stuff with everybody and and that's how my family operates to this day it's very Syrian Lebanese of us to you know have that hospitality and if you're eating there, do they give you stuff to take home with you? So oh, definitely. <laughs> I love definitely. that part. <laughs> we even have a word, like, as I mentioned, the Arabic language hasn't really trickled down as far as it being anyone today's native tongue, but some words and phrases have passed down, mostly related to food, or some of my participants shared, they know some of the cuss words, of but one of the, <laughs> always, but one of the words that my family still uses to this day that I found out in my schooling of Arabic that was an actual Arabic word is a Zuwaiti, which is what we say for a to-go bag. Like, take a Zuwaiti, don't forget your Zuwaiti, you know? So <laughs> we have those things that have just sort of mixed into our vocabulary and our vernacular that I found out are actually just really niche Syrian slang for, for certain Arabic words. That's great. Yeah. Abby, thank you so much. We're looking forward to this exhibit opening. And oh, me too. Um, I will see you there. Yes, thank you so much. I'm sorry if I talked your ear off, but I could talk about this stuff all day. <laughs> great. That's great. Thanks a lot. Thanks so much, Liz. See you soon. Okay. Thanks for listening to Tip of the Tongue, part of the Nitty Grits Network of the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans. Learn more and subscribe to this and other podcasts at southernfood.org 
or wherever you listen to podcasts. Find us on Facebook on Nitty Grits Podcasts. I'm Liz Williams. Thanks for listening.